but I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when you, they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 10 of the REACH podcast. In today's show, I'm chatting to Jeff Valance, who is a physical activity researcher up in Athabasca University in Canada. Jeff has done a tremendous amount of work on a variety of cancer populations and really was at the forefront of the field when it was starting to emerge that physical activity can be beneficial for cancer patients and survivors. He's also done some work with some really unique populations such as non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and gynecological cancers which is important because so much of what we see in the research is focused on breast or prostate or lung and less attention is paid to some of these less common cancers or some that can we can have more difficulty recruiting for. And Jeff's interview is going to be another one that's broken up into two parts because we had such a good chat about all areas of cancer research and, and how, we, how we can really push towards getting survivors more active and working with different populations. And the first part in today's show, we'll talk about, as I said, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and gynecological survivors. Jeff's done some really unique work, such as rock climbing with gynecological cancers and trying to redistribute time spent on certain activities towards physical activity in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma survivors. So I think you'll get a really good insight into that area of research and also what it's like to be a cancer researcher and some of the frustrations we share in how that process can occur. And we also have a really interesting discussion on, on the type of activity we ask cancer patients and survivors to do. For example, I'm really interested in strength training and how to optimize strength training outcomes such as physical function and body composition. Jeff is interested in how reducing sedentary behavior can have a positive impact on health outcomes. And we both kind of agree on this idea that it's less about what we deem is important and more about the activity that you're willing to do long term. And what I mean by that is that you'll have interests and activities that you will have done before your cancer diagnosis. You can still maintain or participate in those activities after diagnosis. So if you're a rock climber or an outdoors person or a skier, you can still do that activity and that counts. That counts as aerobic activity or that counts as our structured activity as we're trying to recommend these guidelines. So we have a really interesting chat about trying to tease out this information from our nationally recommended guidelines. And I think you'll pick that up about half an hour into the conversation. Really cool stuff there. So those are some of the key points I'd like you to look out for as you're going through the show. But anyway, I hope you enjoy the show and we'll get straight to the interview. The primary reason I'm interested in talking to you uh, is this idea that a lot of our research is focused around really common forms of, of cancer for a variety of reasons, but we typically see most of the research in breast and prostate and lung cancer and less so in some of the less common cancers. And you've done some really interesting work with a couple of those, primarily non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and gynecological cancer. 
So I want to dive into to those two areas and we'll kind of start with the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, particularly with this idea of the work you've done looking at reallocating time between uh, sleep and sedentary behavior and physical activity and how that may lead to improved outcomes. So can you touch on, uh, first of all, just touch on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma a little bit and then can you speak to uh, some of the work you've done in this area, particularly looking at that idea of reallocating time and why it's important and what you found? Yeah, sure, Kieran. We, um, back in 2005, we published, I think, one of the first studies looking at non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and, and physical activity um, that was published in, in Psycho-Oncology. And um, I'll refer to it as NHL for, for short. It's a little bit easier to pronounce that way. But um, NHL is a, a bit of a, one of those more unique cancers. It's a bit of a different demographic in terms of the people that it affects. So, you know, on average, it, the group tends to be quite um, younger than, say, breast or colon or prostate cancer survivors. But there's also such a wide variety of, of different types of lymphomas. So Hodgkin's disease, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, and then within there, there's so many different different subtypes. So um, it's certainly a, a unique cancer to study, even when it comes to thinking about the treatment options. So, you know, a lot of these people will be diagnosed with lymphoma, but, but they won't have any active treatment. They'll be on kind of a watch and waiting period. So... Um, it's a little bit different than, you know, say breast cancer, where it's a little bit more prescriptive in terms of the different types of, of treatment that you're gonna gonna get. So with that said, we we saw a need for for looking at you know exercise or physical activity related issues um, in this population, just because of um, you know the documented evidence looking at um, you know the physical and psychosocial impact that a, a lymphoma diagnosis has on on individuals and. I guess I'll just take you back to that first study we did, which kind of sets the tone for some of the work we've done a bit later. We, we essentially just did a, a very simple cross-sectional self-reported survey, asking people to recall their, their physical activity minutes, both during and after their treatments. And, and we um, looked at that in conjunction with health-related quality of life and fatigue. And, and with the activity data, we, we separated it out into people who were meeting guidelines and people who were not meeting physical activity guidelines. So... I believe back then it was five days a week for 30 minutes. We're going back, you know, over 10 years ago now. So we weren't quite at that total dose of 150 minutes a week. Simply what we did is we just compared the people who were meeting guidelines and not meeting guidelines. And um, we found that those meeting guidelines had an improved quality of life and reduced fatigue. And uh, using the functional assessment of cancer therapy, we were able to look at whether those differences met or exceeded uh, what we called clinically important differences. And we found that um, the people who were active had clinically meaningful higher quality of life and reduced fatigue compared to the people who were inactive. So from that study, Carrie Kearney, who I was doing my PhD with at the time, they, they started the, uh, the HELP trial, the uh, Healthy Exercise for Lymphoma Patients trial. And that was one of the first uh, supervised clinical exercise trials to look at uh, individuals with lymphoma. I didn't have too much involvement in that because I was just kind of finishing up my PhD. But recently what we decided to do was to go back to that lymphoma group and um, kind of put the cart uh, kind of back before the horse and reassess the ways that we're looking at physical activity in particular, looking at how we're measuring physical activity in this population. So, 
you know, as you know, how we've done it in the past is a simple pencil and paper survey, right? And um, we have much better gadgets now that can give us a much more precise indication of how active and inactive people are. And, and so um, my colleagues, uh, Terry Boyle, uh, Bridget Lynch and I, um, they're down in Australia. We, um, we sent a bunch of Actigraph accelerometers to uh, NHL survivors and we had them wear the device for, for seven days. And um, what we found is that uh, it wasn't that surprising. I mean, uh, I forget the exact number, but it was over 25% were, were meeting physical activity guidelines. But much like other cancer survivor groups and as well as non-cancer groups in terms of the healthy population, um, these people were getting an extraordinary amount of sedentary time as well. And starting to look at sedentary time is kind of in line with with what we're seeing in our field right now. And and that's a push to not just look at the, you know, the one, two or three um, uh, percent of the day that people are being physically active, but instead looking at the entire day and the different behaviors and activities that can occur through that, throughout that day. So that's including things like um, sleep, light intensity activity, moderate and vigorous intensity activity, and importantly, sedentary time as well. So we had all of that data. We had data from the 24-hour day on these individuals. And, and what we decided to do from that is to look at uh, what we call isotemporal substitution modeling. And it's kind of a new um, technique. Um, one of the key papers that did it was a, a researcher by uh, uh, McCary. Uh, I can't recall the journal. I want to say Journal of Clinical Epidemiology. I, I might be wrong on that, though. And, um, and then the, the technique has been kind of honed and tweaked a bit. And, and my good colleague, Matt Buman down at Arizona State University has, has done some of this, some of these techniques with um, the NHANES data and looking at uh, cardiometabolic uh, risk factors and, and seeing how these different activities are interrelated throughout the day and, and how the different activities can, can impact an outcome. So essentially what we're doing here is, is we're developing a, I guess it's a, it's a hypothetical model. You know, we have all of our behaviors that are happening throughout the day, and then we have an outcome of interest. And for the, uh, for the lymphoma paper, um, the paper that we did, I, I looked at the quality of life and the fatigue data. Essentially what we do is we, we plug it into a linear regression model, and there's a few things you have to do to, to prepare your data set. I won't, I won't go into that, but what we do is we essentially play with the numbers. So what we can do is we, you know, for example, if we want to look at what might be the impact of subtracting 30 minutes from sedentary time, and what happens if we give that 30 minutes to moderate and vigorous physical activity, what could we project or what could we anticipate to see in that dependent variable that we're looking at. And so what we found with the lymphoma survivors is that, you know, any activity that you, you, you take away, you take away minutes from and give to moderate and vigorous physical activity, that's where you're gonna see your, your largest um, hypothetical changes in, in quality of life and fatigue. So it doesn't matter if you take 30 minutes from sedentary time or light intensity activity or sleep, if you're putting those allocated minutes towards moderate and vigorous physical activity, um, we anticipated that we would see, you know, anywhere from a five to six point uh, difference or change, a, fair, a favorable change in quality of life and fatigue. And so it seems like the uh, the bottom line kind of takeaway is is 
moderate to vigorous activity seems to be one of the most beneficial things you can do for these various outcomes in quality of life and and you know physical function as opposed to you know you know sleep and and sedentary behavior obviously are there any so so we look to promote this moderate to visit activity are there any sort of considerations for uh, lymphoma patients in aiming to get there to get to that higher intensity activity any considerations they may want to think of in trying to reach those higher intensities yeah that's a good point and and I think that's actually one of the limitations of doing these types of isotemporal models is that a lot of people would argue, and I would be one of them, you know, people on average are getting, you know, 20, 22 minutes of MVP already on average. If you're going to take away 30 minutes from sleep and ask that person to do 30 more minutes of MVPA, you're almost upwards of, you know, 50 to 60 minutes of MVPA a day. Um, I think that's a bit of a stretch in terms of, asking people to do that. I mean, we can hardly get, you know, people to do the bare minimum, right? So, so it, it goes back to the, the point that, you know, these are largely hypothetical models and it, and it does demonstrate that there might be some, some advantages to doing these higher um, volumes of, of MVPA. But, um, you know, in terms of, of getting lymphoma survivors to, you know, move towards that, that upper level or that, that higher volume of, of physical activity, it's it's certainly not easy, but I don't think it's as simple as just saying, well, go to the gym and, you know, do some more activity that way. I think we need to think of it um, in terms of uh, uh, the larger day. And I think maybe, you know, making small changes here and there throughout the day, um, you know, that could involve uh, things like walking breaks. Um, if somebody does want to do structured um, physical activity in terms of going for a jog or going to the gym, that's great. But if, you know, adding 20 to 30 minutes of MVP a day, I think you need to be a little bit more creative to to sneak in those minutes. Because when we look at those isotemporal models, you know, that's not necessarily uh, time spent specifically in physical activity. These are total minutes of MVPA. So, you know, somebody could jog you know, three blocks down the street to catch the bus. And, you know, the accelerometer is recording that as MVPA. You know, it might not necessarily be health enhancing because it's only happening for 45 seconds. But when we're looking at these models, we are using, you know, the total amount of MVPA. So, you know, kind of going back to your original question there, I mean, if people can sneak in, you know, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, you know, of these higher intensities of physical activity, that's probably the easiest way to do it, as opposed to setting aside a whole extra 30 to 35 minutes to do something that's a bit more structured and, and purposeful. That point seems to be a common theme among the folks I've interviewed, and certainly in the research and that. Absolutely, you can go to the gym and get more exercise, but it's got to fit your lifestyle too, and it's got to be practical in how you do it. And so if we tell you to get an extra 45 minutes of activity and, and you're looking at us and saying, you know, well, right now I barely get 30, focus on getting the 30 first and then work on building off of that. For me, at least, the, the guidelines that we have end up us kind of looking at this as, as just one lane and it's it's kind of an either or in that some people look at that 150 minutes per week and say, well, I'm already working out 60 minutes a day. I'm fit and active as a survivor. Or other people will look at that and say, there's no way I'm ever going to get to that. 
and as you said, it, it then comes back to this individualized nature of exercise and, and figuring out how to how to apply that that recommendation of moderate to vigorous activity and see how it will fit in your life, whether it's you know taking your kids for for a for a run or or going for a run with your dog or whatever the case may be. There's there's more creative ways than just going to the gym and jumping on you know the hamster wheel for an hour. Yeah, I think I, you're right to get to get to those higher levels of activity. That's where I think you really need to make uh, lifestyle changes and and you know you know, things like, um, walking to the grocery store or maybe taking public transit or, you know, getting a dog. I, I think getting a dog's a, a great idea. That's a, a good way to get people active. Um, but yeah, it, you really need to change the way, um, you commute. You got to change the way that you work. Um, it's like you said, it's not just as simple as, uh, well, I'm just going to get up early and I'm going to go to the local YMCA and, and, and work out for another 30 minutes because you're already getting your 20 to 25 minutes of MVPA as it is. And like I said, to get to those higher levels, and um, I think you need to, to make more kind of environmental changes around you, whether that's in your house or at work or whatnot. But, you know, another um, thing that, you know, is, I guess it's a bit of a, a chip on my shoulder that I have, I have about some of these issues is, you know, we forget that, you know, these people have endured, cancer treatment, right? Um, they've gone through, you know, whether it's surgery or, or chemo or radiation. And, and with lymphoma, a lot of people are, are back on treatment. They're on and off treatment. And, you know, from a public health standpoint, when you, when you think of all of our um, messaging and our physical activity campaigns, it's, you know, it, it's things like, um, you know, get out and exercise. It's, it's easy and it's good for you and it's fun. And, you know, all you got to do is put one foot in front of the other and, it's easy for you and I to say, but, um, you know, I, I personally, I, I haven't received six rounds of, um, of taxing based chemotherapy and I've never had radiation therapy and heck I've never even had surgery in my life. You know, I'm, I, I guess I'm, uh, you know, and, and it's hard enough, it's hard enough to be active when you haven't gone through those things. And so we kind of need to take a step back and, and recognize and maybe just be reminded a little bit about the population that, that we're working with. And, you know, of course you have some people that breeze through these treatments and, and, and they, they get through their cancer treatments and, and they're, they're good to go. But, you know, a good chunk of these people still struggle with, with lingering symptoms and, um, their bodies aren't the same just, just because it's, it has literally been pounded by, by toxic chemotherapy and, and radiation that has lasting, uh, impact. So, you know, when we're designing ways for, encouraging activity in these populations i don't think we can forget those types of things that's such a good point that i really want to highlight that particularly for professionals interested in this area in that there's certainly people that will be flying fit during treatment and just take this this really attack-minded approach where they're determined to maintain or increase their activity and and they come out better but they tend to be the minority in the folks we work with you know, a lot of the people in this area tend to be younger, tend to be, you know, people in the area of exercise physiology. So we have exercise and, and physical activity is a part of our life. We don't even give it a second thought. And so it's harder for us to put ourselves in the mindset of someone who doesn't consider exercise or activity a priority, particularly when they're going through 
exhaustive, extensive treatment. And so we really have to be mindful of of appreciating that and and learning how to work with these people and figuring out where activity falls on their priority list and how we can work with them to to identify and overcome certain barriers to that. And I think that's that's going to be a, a, a massive way for us to move the field forward and certainly increase the activity. There's no point in us saying, yeah, just go out and run when you know they they have no desire to even get out of bed we have to find ways to meet them where they're at and then bring them forward with us yeah and you know i i think this kind of also goes back to you know all of the you know experimental work and and the clinical trials that have been done you know i don't know about yourself but i've experienced being in in the fitness center when i was doing my phd and 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 training women on trial uh you know going through chemotherapy and things like that and you know, by and large, those are um, the higher functioning individuals that are that are coming into these studies. You know, the if you look at um, you know my my colleague uh, Vim Gruen in Amsterdam and I are, are currently putting a piece together. You know, we're looking at distance-based trials uh, in cancer and physical activity, and and you know we look at things like uh, you know the average BMI in these studies and you know, income and marital status. And, you know, by and large, these, these people are quite young. You know, the average age is about 50, 51. Their BMI is average of about 27. They're largely Caucasian. They're, they're, they're married, higher income status. You know, it's a very small snippet or snapshot of, of cancer survivors uh, that are out there from a, from a population-based perspective. So, you know, we, you know, we, we take the data that we have, and for this lung for this lymphoma study, I mean, the, the data it is, it is what it is. But we all we need to recognize that, you know, these are the people that are interested in in exercise and wearing an accelerometer. So, you know, if anything, our MVPA minutes for the sample are, are probably a little bit higher than what they what they truly are. But um, yeah, I guess just just recognizing the limitations of the types of samples that we've had in all of the different uh, trials and, and the work that, that we've done. And, you know, I don't think these individuals are necessarily representative of, of what's out there. That's a really good point. And I, I have to thank you for bringing it up because it's something that I haven't mentioned on the show yet. And you really highlight the, the challenges with research in this area. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously you go through the review board, you get your study approved and you're ready to go. And, um, Based on our inclusion criteria, we're looking for a certain type of cancer, maybe during or after treatment. And as you said, Jeff, you know, we reach out to these people and there, there's work out there looking at recruitment rates and how difficult it is to recruit people. And folks who tend to join the studies um, are more often than not younger, more interested in activity. And that's given an altered perception of what the total population of cancer yeah. survivors yeah. are like and so we may be missing out on those who are you know much more overweight who have more barriers to exercise who you know live in rural areas so that's a really good point that i appreciate you highlighting for us yeah and and with that said i mean I, fellow academics aren't helping us out because i think um you know we just got reviewer feedback from a i won't name the competition um, we didn't get funded but uh, we were planning to recruit uh, overweight and obese breast cancer survivors to participate in a year-long physical activity program. And, and this one reviewer's main concern was about, you know, how are you going to, you know, identify overweight and obese survivors? And you need to be very sensitive in approaching these 
people because you're essentially telling them that they're overweight or obese and yeah, you know, so we're trying to take a targeted approach and, and obviously we would, we would go about it, um, in, in a sensitive way and, you know, but, but though that's the type of feedback that we still get, you know, and, you know, you, you go back to the, the general, uh, you know, nutrition and physical activity literature, and there's loads of randomized trials that have specifically focused on overweight or obese, uh, you know, even morbidly obese, right? I mean, it's been done before. It's nothing new, but you know, you, you still get these these types of comments from from reviewers that you know. They, I guess they just can't see the forest through the trees. But yeah, I I guess that just goes back to my my point about we need to be a little bit more strategic in in who we're recruiting into these into these types of studies. I guess. Yeah, and that's the frustrating thing is that, as you said, it's coming from academics and it's coming from folks in their area that really should be able to see the value and stuff like that and for a, a, an example from my area for my phd dissertation we were wanting to look at if the intensity of exercise affected uh, various inflammation inflammatory markers in breast cancer patients undergoing chemo particularly because oncologists and physicians tend to be a little bit more apprehensive about prescribing exercise you know during chemo where there may be this chronic low-grade inflammation and the review board, again, didn't see the value in doing this acute study to look at a few different intensities versus doing a 12-week-long intervention. And we're kind of saying, you know, this has to come before that. If, if we're trying to get these to do higher-intensity exercise for 12, 14 weeks, we've got to see what happens around an acute session first. And as you said, it's very frustrating when you when you get that type of feedback and they, they don't quite see the value in, in what you're looking to do when, when there is a lot there. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I guess that's the, the choice of peer review. We should do a whole other podcast on peer reviewing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I have a feeling this is going to run into a two or three part series. Just exactly. The podcast is going to change into you and I just complaining about academia instead of <laughs> anything <laughs> tangible. And we'll get our own talk show. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so this leads into the, into the next study really well because we're talking about this idea of, of finding activity that you enjoy ultimately is going to be one of the best things that, that helps adherence. And a really interesting and novel study you have looking at wall climbing and, and gynecological cancer survivors. Again, why don't we backtrack a little bit just give us a picture of, of why gynecological cancers, what's unique about them, and um, then move on to the this study of wall climbing that you helped kind of supervise and were a part of. Yeah, well, first thought, I, I, I can't take any credit for that study. That study was um, done by a, a, one of Kerry Kearney's uh, recent PhD graduates, uh, Jennifer Crawford. She's now working for a health region in Saskatchewan, which is just next door to Alberta here. Um, so that was her PhD dissertation work, and I was on the supervisory committee, so I had a little bit of input into it, obviously. But that was um, that was all her doing. But um, just back to your your question there about gynecological cancer survivors, I don't want to say that they're they're entirely not unique. I mean, they are, but you know, so many of these these cancers do have a lot of commonalities, right? So you know, I, I think gynecological cancers are probably most equated to or most similar to breast cancer survivors. So in general, your, you know, your, your BMI is, is a little bit higher. So um, individuals in these uh, affected with these types of cancers have, have a higher body weight that, that seems to be one of the, the predisposing risk factors to, to getting some of these different gynecological cancers. 
Um, you know, a, a lot of the treatment reg regimens are the same. I mean, surgery is typically involved and, and chemo as well. And, um, you know, so with that said, I mean, there are some similarities. There are some differences in terms of um, recurrence and, and mortality rates, but um, I, won't, I won't get into that. But I guess going, do you want me to, do you want me to talk about the, the wall climbing intervention or? Yeah, let's, let's hear about that because I, I think it's fascinating. Yeah. So at, at the University of Alberta, they're, they're quite fortunate. They have a, a really world-class wall climbing, indoor wall climbing facility. Uh, you know, I, I guess Jennifer saw, saw a niche. Jennifer is a, uh, she's kind of an outdoorsy person. She's a, a, a bit of a, I know she's a downhill skier and competitive ski racer. And um, so she had a, a keen interest in uh, what they call uh, adventure-based activities. And, you know, that's something that we haven't really seen in the area of, of cancer survivorship. You know, a, a fellow that I've done some work with here in Calgary, his name's Mikey Lang, and he runs quite a large organization for young adults who have been affected by cancer. And, and, and he does these adventure trips. So whether they're camping or sailing, um, and they're these kind of three, four day retreats where there's 10 or 12 um, young adults. A lot of them are, are late teens as well. And um, Mike's kind of a qualitative researcher and um, he's also like a, uh, he's a movie producer. Like he, like movies are his way of, of telling stories and communicating. And, you know, so we've, we've seen some of this work done, you know, from more of a qualitative perspective and, you know, but Jennifer really did a good job at kind of bringing it into the, um, into the experimental world. And um, it was quite a, quite a simple design in, in terms of the study. It was just a, um, 12 week wall climbing intervention. It was, um, uh, two or three days a week and there was an intervention and a control group. And, you know, one of the problems with, with the study was it, it did have quite a, a smaller sample size, but, you know, as you were talking about earlier, sometimes you need to do these, um, kind of more proof of principle or, or if you want to call it a pilot study, um, just to see if it is feasible. I mean, um, you know, a lot of these women going through chemo treatments would have, um, arthralgias or neuralgias in, in, in their limbs, their fingers, their toes, um, you know, complications or side effects or after effects from surgery. These women uh, tend to be a little bit on, on the heavier side compared to the general population. So can you even put these individuals on a climbing wall and can they do it and, and are they going to enjoy it and are they going to perceive some some benefit out of it? You know, and I think you know, by and large, there was some certainly some interesting findings that that came out of it. They, uh, Jennifer certainly demonstrated that there was a real keen interest for that type of an activity. Um, the women were were super keen and and really excited to do something a little bit different. There was clearly a large uh, social support component because these women were um, were doing it in groups, so they weren't just the only one on the wall. There was uh, some other women in the study as well. And, um, you know, that's probably a limitation of, of most intervention work that we do. You, it's really hard to isolate women and to, you know, have them do their activity or their exercise in, in isolation. That's, that's not much fun, but so there might be a bit of a social, social support or a social component that might be influencing the results a little bit. No, I think at the end of the day, you know, we're always so focused on, you know, putting somebody on a treadmill or putting somebody on a recumbent cycle or a stationary cycle. Um, you know, when we think of an aerobic fitness intervention, 
we think about those things. When we think of a resistance training intervention, we, we think about women going into the fitness center and, and doing the, the routine of, you know, the seven or eight different stations that are there with respect to the resistance training program. You know, I've always argued that we really need to start um, thinking outside of the box and not everybody wants to walk on a treadmill and not everybody wants to sit and, uh, and do a, a lat curl um, or a bicep curl. It, it gets a little bit tedious and, and in all honesty, it gets a little bit boring. And, you know, if we really want to find different ways of that we can motivate cancer survivors, and it doesn't matter if it's gynecological or, or colon or, or breast or lung, you know, I, I think there should be some choice involved. And the message kind of, we talked a lot about this in, in her uh, thesis defense was, you know, the implications you know, when it, when it comes to the cancer center or the hospital, does this mean that, you know, everybody should refer their, their patient, you know, when they're done their treatment to, to a wall climbing gym? And, and, you know, she said, you know, no, that's not the case at all, but it just, you know, it goes back to the point of, of providing choice. And there's lots of different activities that are safe and feasible. I, 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 off the top of my head, I can't think of one activity or one exercise that, that has been documented to be not safe or detrimental for somebody who's gone through through cancer. And, you know, I think now you can add wall climbing to that list of, of things that, first of all, they're interested in doing these different types of activities. None of them had had any wall climbing experience. Um, and there was some enjoyment and some benefit out of that. And you could probably argue that there was more enjoyment and benefit out of doing that than there was you know, putting one foot in front of the other in a, in a treadmill in a lab-based fitness center. So it was, it was pretty exciting. And, and I think a couple of those papers are now out in uh, either press or, or they're published. So people can certainly um, dig up Jennifer Crawford's name and, and they can um, see how those studies were done. It, it's such a unique and interesting study. I, I found it fascinating. And before, you know, I'm going to highlight a couple of points you mentioned before I do that, so you talked about this guy, Mike, who runs the outdoor program. For people who may be listening in Canada or nearby, what's the name of that program and, and how can they find that? Do you know off the top of your head? Yeah, so Mike, yeah, he's in Calgary. And of course, it doesn't have, I mean, it, he's a PhD student right now. Uh, he's working with Janine Geese Davis at, uh, at the University of Calgary. Um, but he also does a lot of work with engagement and patient experience. I know if I bring up, he's got a YouTube channel and, um, and people can, I'll, I'll, I'll dig it up here while, while we're chatting and, and then I'll, I'll provide the link there and people can see the, the work, um, that he's doing. Cause it's really neat because he is a, he is kind of a documentary filmmaker. And so, you know, to see these people's stories and, um, how it all unfolds is, is incredibly powerful. That's brilliant. Okay, so, you know, while we're finding Mike's information, we'll go back to a couple of points. And you mentioned the, the idea of social support being a limitation. And as we're looking to translate this into practical application, I think that's such a big strength of what we do in this area. As you said, one of the single best or one of the, the single most powerful ways to stop someone or or put someone off exercise who has never done it before is to bring them in put them on a recumbent bike and say do 45 minutes i'll check back in with you later so they're just cycling on their own in this room whereas you know people have different interests before they have cancer and they have different 
uh, they like to do different things before they have cancer. That doesn't change with a cancer diagnosis, and it certainly doesn't change as you move into survivorship. So if you've been an outdoor person, or if you're looking for something different and, and interesting, and you, you, you know, that just can give you a, a different element of activity, certainly rock climbing is one of those, but it, it keeps coming back to this idea that exercise doesn't have to be this structured you know day in day out same thing it becomes a grind it becomes boring and then you fall off kind of thing it's it's what you like to do and even more so if you can get people in a similar position to you that that are going through maybe something similar to you and get that in a group that's going to foster that social support so much more than doing it in isolation and so i think that's they're two really you know fairly big points that that i really try and promote as i get this message across because too often we throw up the ACSM guidelines or we throw up the national guidelines and say 150 minutes and people look at us and go what, what am I meant to do with that and so finding these unique ways to get that exercise in is, is really interesting and a really good way to to look at those more novel ways of exercising yeah and I, I guess that's you know I, I'm starting to believe that you know maybe we don't really need to treat cancer survivors any different from the general population. You know, we know that exercise and activity is safe and beneficial, and, and there's no evidence to suggest that cancer survivors are interested in different types of activities than, than you and I are. You know, for you and I to stay engaged in, in activity and exercise, we, we probably need to shake it up a little bit and, um, and do different things and, and be active in different ways, or else it's not something that's going to be sustainable. You know, I run every morning. I've been doing it for about nine or 10 years, but um, it's just because it's one of the ways I, I wake up and if I don't do it, I'm, I'm groggy and, you know, but, um, you know, a couple, you know, some, some years maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do soccer. I, you know, I play, I play, you know, men's league hockey, you know, some years and, you know, even I find that I need to, you know, do things, you know, do things differently from year to year, you know, try new activities. You know, you, you talked about social support, that's an area that we, a lot of the early exercise and cancer research done back, you know, 15 years ago, looked at things like dragon boating and social support. I think we've kind of gotten away from that. And I think that might be something that we need to get back to. I think social support for anybody, not just cancer survivors, but for anybody um, is a critical piece um, towards not just getting people active, but more importantly, getting them to stay active for months and years past their treatment. You mentioned dog walking. That's that's another whole interesting area that I'd love to get into. But it, it, at University of Sydney right now, Manos Stamatakis is is leading a a big NHMRC study down there, looking at dog walking, and they're they're partnering with uh, veterinarians, uh, their local SPCA's, dog parks, city municipalities. Like it's such a multi pronged approach um, to what they're doing in terms of um, bringing forth and shedding light on on dog walking and, and the health impacts that dog ownership and walking can have so you know a lot of these things are are just starting to come to the forefront and you know unfortunately when it comes to the cancer world and in particular the of course the, the exercise in cancer world i think sometimes maybe we're we're chasing what's happening in physical activity research that's happening in the non-cancer populations so I, I think we're going to be we're, we're chasing this a little bit, but we need to I think we need to just step up our game a little bit and maybe be willing to take a little bit more risk in 
in the types of interventions we're looking at and the, the types of activities that we're looking at. The wall climbing intervention is a, a prime example. And then, you know, of course, looking at, at you know, things like dog walking and social support and exercising in groups. You know, there, there are small studies here and there that have been done in kind of a piecemeal way, and but certainly nothing definitive, not that there is really anything definitive in, in our world of physical activity, but, you know, maybe some more rigorous types of studies that can maybe lend a little bit more insight into the role of things like social support, adventure-based sports activities, dog walking, um, that those types of things can can play or have an impact in, in somebody who's had a cancer diagnosis. You talking about pushing the field forward and taking some more risk kind of leads me to my next point on, on the wall climbing study and I'll let you weigh, on, weigh in on this too but this idea of of exercise versus usual care so in the wall climbing study these folks improved various measures of physical function compared to usual care and one of the things I'm so passionate about and and the the true statisticians will absolutely murder me over this but we have gotten so far in the progression of our field that I just Every single study you see comparing exercise to usual care, the usual care gets worse, or at least they don't see the same benefits of those who exercise. And it highlights, one, just how bad our usual care is. And two, I strongly believe that we need to move away from comparing exercise to no exercise. Because as you said, we... (laughs) We know that exercise works. You can't tell me that you do a strength training program versus someone who does an aerobic training program and, you know, the strength training program gets, strength training group gets stronger, the aerobic training group gets fitter cardiovascularly. You can't tell me that there's there, there's statistical error there. You know what I mean? I, I, I really yeah. feel strongly about moving away from exercise versus usual care because if you look at these people, they are, the people that are interested in our studies are dying for an exercise program. And we need to do a better job of giving it to them. So this could be a part of that progression in comparing different modes of exercise or comparing different types of exercise. And I think that will really, you know, push part of this field forward too. Yeah. And, you know, as you're, you're talking about that, I'm in my mind, I'm thinking of, um, you know, some of Kerry Kearney's work and, and looking at um, things like combined aerobic and resistance training and exactly and, and looking at different intensities. So instead of having a, you know, a control group that does nothing and just goes through their chemotherapy, you know, everybody's on trial, but everybody's getting a different prescribed um, exercise intensity. So whether that's, you know, 60% of your VO2 max or, you know, all the way up to 75 or 80, I forget what the actual um, groups were, but it was looking at kind of a, a lighter, moderate to a more, you know, higher intensity physical activity. And, you know, yeah, yeah, you're bang on. And, and even again, I'll, I'll lean on Carrie's work here and going back to the um, start trial, which I was involved in, and that was comparing aerobic to resistance training. Now there was a usual um, care group uh, in there as well that didn't receive any activity, but that was pretty early on. That was back in 2004 or so when we started that trial and that was for women who were going on to chemotherapy so they received a exercise intervention that ran parallel with their chemotherapy treatments so they were coming into the fitness center three days a week and they were either doing aerobic training or they're either doing uh, resistance training Um, because that area was so new 
in terms of chemotherapy, we didn't quite know what to expect. I mean, could women come in three days a week when they're, you know, in their fourth or fifth cycles of, of chemotherapy, you know, four or five months into their chemo treatments, could they still come in and do these types of exercises? So, so we still found a, a pretty strong reason or rationale to, to, to keep a usual care control group in there. But, but you're right. Now we're at the point where, you know, we have a, a wealth of evidence suggesting mm-hmm. that these activities are, are good for you for one, but they're safe. And by and large, they're, they're not going to do, they're not going to do any harm. So you're right. I mean, having a, a usual care control group at this point is is um is a little bit. I I won't say silly. I mean, there's certain research questions. I can certainly understand why there might be a, a usual care control group. But um, you know, if we're looking at more broader scale programs or distance based interventions, which I've done some work in, you know, we should be moving towards these more comparative trials as opposed to these classic RCT designs where where we have a control group. So that's it for today's show and I think that's a really good point to end on in that we're now starting to change our focus from just comparing exercise to no exercise in cancer groups to now looking at different forms of exercise and it's such a strong indication of not only just how far we've come in the field of exercise oncology but how we're starting to think and how much value we're putting on exercise and the power of exercise to complement treatment and improve survivorship. So again, thanks to Jeff for chatting to us today. If you're looking for Jeff, you can find him on Twitter at Jeff Valance is his Twitter handle. And again, you can find me on Twitter at Kieran Fairman or go to reachbeyondcancer.com and you can find us there. And I'll also put Mikey Lang, who is the guy who does the outdoor cancer survivorship trips. I'll put his information in the show notes there as well so you can catch him. So thanks a lot for tuning in, folks, and we'll see you soon.